What is? What is? What is? What is biblical counseling? Biblical counseling will grow you from brokenness to wholeness. The light bulbs are going off in my head. <laughs> this is like deep. I just haven't thought of it that way. It's mind blowing to me. I don't know if I've ever had anybody put it that plainly to me before. All this time I've been going to church, this never resonated with me. This is Transformed. And now your host, Assistant Professor of Biblical Counseling at the Masters University and Certified Biblical Counselor, Dr. Greg Gifford. Welcome back to Transformed. My name is Dr. Greg Gifford. And on this next series, we will be discussing mental health. Now, you have been thinking about this. You have been asking about this. I hear questions regularly regarding mental health and mental illnesses, particularly in disorders, psychotropic medications. So what we're going to do is we are going to spend about six to seven episodes discussing the mind versus the brain. I want to start today's episode by introducing just a thought for your consideration. And as we progress, digging down into the nuts and bolts of how do we think about mental illnesses? How do we think about a diagnosis that we have received, that our children have received? How do I think about medications? Is there a place for medications or do psychotropic medications have no place in the life of the Christian? I want to do my best to, to answer all of those. And I think in order to do that, I'm going to build a foundation and then I'll get to the specific things like the psychotropic meds or the diagnosis questions. But let me start by sharing a quote with you. If you are unfamiliar with this book, it is Carl Truman's Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It came out just a few years ago. And he is writing particularly on the sexual revolution. Okay, this one is the big one. This is 400 pages, and you have to put on your thinking cap to chop your way through this. So I borrowed a thinking cap from someone else. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I put on my thinking cap and I strapped it in. As I made it to the end of this book, he said something that jumped off the page at me, and I want to share it with you. He said, societies have categories for thinking about people and identity, and a real problem occurs when those categories are simply not adequate or appropriate. A real problem occurs when those categories are simply not adequate or appropriate. When talking about mental health slash the opposite of mental health, mental illness, is it an appropriate or an adequate category for understanding people? I'm going to answer them. But first, let me share with you some of what you already know. Perhaps you already have sensed it. Did you know? Did you know that right now, one out of every five people in North America are diagnosed with a mental illness? Did you know that? A mental illness, that could be something as, as uh, similar or I guess as common as a generalized anxiety disorder or depression, PTSD. Did you know that one in five people in North America are diagnosed with a mental illness? Did you know that that number is continuing to grow? So right now, it is one in five, but yet that number is increasing. So potentially before long, that's going to be 
yesteryear, and you're going to know even more people that have been diagnosed with a mental illness. This includes both children and adults. Maybe you're familiar with the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. It is a manual that helps identify what are mental health disorders. So mental illnesses is what they're typically called. It's kind of like an encyclopedia for those of you that have actually never seen a physical copy of it. Think of Encyclopedia Britannica, but inside you have categories for mental illnesses. Those categories are what is called symptom-based. So you will identify what you're experiencing. And as you're meeting with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, a marriage family therapist, uh, whoever that is, you're going to then say, this is what I'm experiencing. And they're going to say, those symptoms tend to match this disorder in the DSM. Symptom-based diagnostics actually have a question mark next to them by some of those that are in the field itself. Dr. Thomas Enzel said of the most recent DSM that it lacks validity. It lacks validity because we are describing our problem with our words, and then someone else is diagnosing us based off of our description of what we are experiencing. Listener, I hope you're being discerning as you're hearing me say this. If I describe my problem to you, and yet there is no empirical evidence, there's no physiological, meaning my body, there's nothing going on in my body to support what I'm telling you, then now I have to be very, very cautious about receiving a diagnosis based off of my own description of it. So in 2013, there was a big brouhaha because of the most recent DSM that was released. And now the DSM-5, as it currently stands, has been rejected by some as being non-empirical or lacking validity. Dr. Alan Francis was a big part of the DSM-4. And when the DSM-5 was published, he also became a big critic of the DSM-5. The Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, he said, was going to make certain people go to bed well and wake up sick the next morning as soon as the DSM-5 was published. Consider that. You did not have an illness until this DSM was published. And when you wake up, you now have an illness. Why do you have an illness? Because the DSM says you do. How does the DSM know you do based off of symptoms that you describe that a psychiatrist matches to your experience? You can Google some of his work. I would encourage you to. Alan Francis's work. There's a lecture that he published talking about diagnostic inflation. And he said this in a pithy way, the, the way of shock and awe to a certain degree. Remember, this is the Duke Professor Emeritus. This is psychiatrist himself. He's not an enemy. And to my knowledge, Dr. Francis is not a Christian. So there's, there's nothing that he's trying to prove for a Christian here. But rather, what he says is, in this lecture of diagnostic inflation, he says, our, our topic is who is sick and who is not. Pretty soon, everybody's going to be sick. What if this is happening right beneath our feet, listener? Have you thought about this? What if this is happening? That we are stigmatizing normal behaviors, and now we call them a mental illness. What if grief is actually just a normal response to an abnormal circumstance? Or what if PTSD is a normal response 
to abnormal circumstances. So when you sense a temptation to be fearful after you hear a noise, smell a smell, your heart rate increases because that's the way you've, re- you've responded, excuse me, in times past and that's how you're responding right now. What if that's actually a normal response to an abnormal circumstance? Is there a such thing as those being an illness, a biological illness? You know, this is hard to say, and I know it's a sensitive topic, but homosexuality was considered a mental illness up until the mid-70s. Where was it considered a mental illness? By the APA in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual. So that as a mental illness, homosexuality as a mental illness was dropped mid-70s, somewhere around 73, 74. Oh my goodness. So what if we have a group of individuals that are actually diagnosing people based off of what they say, using a seemingly empirical book, a diagnostic criteria like the DSM, and yet there is no empirical proof that you have this illness? Would you say that is an appropriate or an accurate category for understanding people? All right, now, you're hearing this and you're like, Dr. Gifford, where are you going with this? Ah, no, I, I'm hopefully prompting you just a little bit in this opening segment. Have you ever thought about these things? Have you ever thought about them? I want to just prompt you, and hopefully it's a little shocking to hear that everyone's starting to be diagnosed with mental illnesses. The diagnostic criteria for a mental illness is a little fast and loose. Even within the psychiatric community, there is debate about the way that a person is diagnosed. There is a stigmatization of normal behaviors and a destigmatization of abnormal behaviors. All of that are unfolding right beneath our feet. So that's going to affect the next steps that we begin to take. So as a Christian, do you receive a mental illness label and accept it point blank? This is where the rubber is going to be the road. When you are told that your child has a mental illness, do you accept it point blank or do you, with discernment, seek to understand what is being said in that? This series is here to help you think through that. My goal is not to jettison all mental health and mental illness language. That is not my goal. My goal is to equip you biblically to think about mental health and the converse of mental illness in our modern culture. We are reaching epidemic levels in part because we are not sure what the Bible says about the mind versus the brain. Listener, catch this. Make sure you catch this. If you're scared by the rest of it, here is the thrust and here is the clarifying point. When you understand what the Bible says about the mind and the brain, all of the other things will begin to be solved for you labels, potential illnesses, psychotropic medications, thinking about my child's potential mental illness, all of those will be solved when you begin to understand how does the Bible speak about people. That is the thrust of this series on mind versus brain. So we have to take a break. When we come back for our next segment, I want to show you how we got to this point historically and thoughts about where we're going next. So we'll take a break and be right back. All right. 
righty, well, we'll be back to Dr. Gifford in just a moment as he continues to discuss the mind and the brain. If you've been listening to this Transform show or watching Dr. Gifford on the Transform TV series, I'm going to assume you've gathered a couple of different things. Number one, not only is Dr. Gifford very helpful, but another thing that you may have gathered is that this broadcast and all of our resources for that matter here at Gospel Partners Media are very highly produced. And in order to do that, it takes, well, it takes resources. It takes you. And that's why I wanted to take a minute to talk to you about becoming a gospel partner. If that's not something you're doing at the moment, I want to ask you to prayerfully consider it. And you can get on transform.org right now to get the answers to any questions you might have about what it would look like in your life to become an ongoing monthly gospel partner. But just know this, if you do, you are helping us produce Transform. You're helping us produce our other resources like Road Trip to Truth and Wretched Radio and TV. You're helping us to reach millions of people all over the world with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and helping hurting people out there who need to hear this message of hope. So if you would consider becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner, we would really, really appreciate it. And if you are already an ongoing monthly gospel partner, well, you know how much we appreciate you. I hope you know how much we appreciate you. So all of the answers to the questions that you have about this can be found at transformed.org. Now, a couple of different resources I want to highlight to you that you'll find in the Transform store when you're visiting and hopping around transform.org. One is Paul Todd's Knowing God's Peace. It's a 31-day devotional, and it walks readers through what the Bible says about experiencing freedom from anxiety. And another thing I want to mention real quick before we get back to Dr. Gifford is that if you've been thinking about becoming a biblical counselor like Dr. Gifford here, well, bless you, because our churches are in dire need of more biblical counselors, and you can get the ball rolling with David Pallison Singh with New Eyes, a robust overview of the theology behind biblical counseling. And you can pick it up right now at transform.org. Now, let's get back to the second half of the show as Dr. Gifford continues his discussion on the mind and the brain. This is Transform. Welcome back to Transform. The world's definition of beauty is simply not found in the Bible. Instead, the Bible informs us that true beauty is defined not by this world, but by God Himself. And now your host, Dr. Greg Gifford. Jimmy, thanks for doing such a great job for us and equipping us with great resources. I hope you have the chance to look up transformed.org, see our bookstore, see the resources. Honestly, those are a great tool, and maybe you yourself don't need that, but someone else would benefit by just learning what tools and resources are out there. Yes, that would be great. Go check out Transformed. Now, back to our subject at hand, mind versus brain. So let me give you just a brief historical overview. And you know I try to save historical overviews for other episodes, and I, and I find that this is important just for the sake of helping you know how we got here. I want to describe how we got here with mental health, mental illness. So Clifford Whittingham Beers is really the father of the mental health, which is known as the mental hygiene movement. He lived at the end of the 19th into the 20th century. Uh, he was an educated man, educated at Yale in accounting and actually worked in New York City for a period where he was an accountant. As he was reaching just kind of a personal crisis, he thought it best to step away from his job and then to go back home for a little bit. 
And as he goes back home, the idea was rest and recuperation so he could get back to work. But his condition worsened. He's staying at home with his parents and his mom functionally became his caretaker. He had other siblings. But as he's at home, he begins to become delusional. He begins to become uh, fearful and paranoid. And in between visits to his third story or third floor room, he began to think, you know, I'm, I'm sick of this. I'm going to take my own life. So one day he strategically times it that his mom comes and visits. She leaves the room and he goes to the window and jumps. At the last minute, he gets scared. He grabs the window seal and he hangs there for just a moment before letting go and dropping three stories. As you can imagine, he broke his legs. There was multiple damages, but what that was interpreted as is what it was, which is an attempt to take his own life. That led to a bout of going to insane asylums. Now, if you're unaware of insane asylums at the beginning of the 20th century, just think of solitary confinement in a prison or a jail. An insane asylum during this time meant functionally that your human rights were gone, that you were seen as crazy and potentially a menace to society. So what Beers faced over the next three to four years was just awful, honestly. He was transferred between different insane asylums within Connecticut. And how do you prove you're not insane when you're called insane? You know, uh, I'm not insane. You're insane. Ah, uh, see, you're denying it. I'm not insane. You're insane. It's like, ah, oh, he doesn't even know how insane he really is. You know, this is what Beers began to experience. So it led to anger, which would lead to more solitary confinement and straight jackets. It led to disruptive behavior because they weren't listening to him, which again leads to further consequences. And it just further perpetuates this idea that you are a menace. So Beers, uh, he's stuck. Functionally, he's stuck. How do you prove that you're well when everyone thinks you're not well? Oh, it seems to be an impossible thing to do. But as he was given further liberty during his stays at these asylums, one afternoon he sneaks out and he writes a letter to the governor. He tells the governor of his treatment and he asks for an investigation to be launched against the hospital where he was. And it indeed happened. The governor launched an investigation through that. It's, it seems weird to say that Clifford was freed, but he was released. He was allowed to be discharged. After that, he wrote a book called A Mind That Found Itself. You can find this, this open source. You guys can Google this and find this book. But in that, he begins to propose reform for the insane asylums. The asylums should protect human rights, not detract from them. Furthermore, he said, in order to prevent people going to the asylum in the first place, we have to be able to invest in mental hygiene. Mental hygiene. Think of dental hygiene. You brush, you flush, you use mouthwash. He was beginning to propose a medicalized understanding of the mind. So he says mental hygiene. Let's invest in people's mental hygiene. That term mental hygiene is what we would now use as mental health. His proposal was we need to actually start schools where medical doctors are trained to understand mental hygiene. Guess what those were? Psychiatry. His evidence was that Europe's already doing this. America needs to do this as well. So through his efforts to bring about reform to the insane asylums, he helps solidify psychiatry's place in the United States. Now you train as a medical doctor. You even get state licensed and board certified to become a psychiatrist. and yet. The medical doctor known as the psychiatrist is actually completely focused on the inner person. How did that come about? It came about primarily through Clifford Whittingham Beers. 
the idea of psychiatry as being a medical doctor is because of his efforts. So now mental hygiene is seen as this medical thing by medical doctors where you are treated. So you fast forward to our current age and you think that's exactly right. Like you go and you meet with the psychiatrist. The psychiatrist is going to use the DSM. The DSM is the grouping of symptom-based labels to help you understand. And now potentially the psychiatrist is even going to prescribe you medication based off of what you are verbally telling them. Where did that come from? Clifford Whittingham Beers is the one that helped initiate that in the United States. A couple of other things that have contributed to it, and I've done different lectures across the states. Uh, This is part of a forthcoming work on mind versus brain, but you will note in the 90s, there was a White House conference led by then First Lady Hillary Clinton. She brings in Dr. Stephen Hyman, a leading psychiatrist now at Harvard, but then at the National Institute of Mental Health. She brings him in and he begins to confuse the brain versus the mind. In that conference, Dr. Hyman says that these are real illnesses of a real organ, the brain, when he's talking about mental illnesses. What Whittingham, Clifford Whittingham Beers did was bring in this era of we are going to treat the mind like it's the brain and the brain like it is the mind. So now you get to the 90s and you have a lead psychiatrist say these are real illnesses of a real organ, the brain. The problem is that when a psychiatrist diagnoses you, they're not scanning your brain. They're not measuring levels of some type of um, chemical in your body. Uh, That's neurotransmitters are not even measured during that time. So what you're saying is that these are real illnesses of a real organ, the brain, and yet we have no empirical evidence that the brain is actually the source of mental illnesses. Furthermore, this is going to be something I'll address next episode. When you're talking about the mind, you're talking about something that is immaterial. Biblically, I will show you that the mind is not a material thing, meaning the mind cannot get pneumonia, meaning that the mind is not going to receive appropriately medical jargon or appropriately receive medical terms because the mind cannot be treated with medical remedies. The mind is immaterial. However, the brain is material and you could see the brain, touch the brain. The brain is harnessed within the cranium, within your head. Of course, the brain is a material thing, but what if you confuse the mind and the brain and now you treat the brain as if it were the mind and you treat the mind as if it were the brain? That is, my friends, that is exactly where we are today. We are beginning to treat the immaterial part of who we are with material remedies. Consider this, and this, this episode perhaps is just loosening and challenging some of your worldview, and I hope I've gained enough trust with you to be able to ask you these hard questions. But consider this, what if Clifford Whittingham Beers, out of a good desire to bring about reform, he actually confused the way that people should be understood, that he medicalized the mind by introducing medical doctors to understand the mind? Do you know that it was actually clergy that were the primary carers of the mind up until Whittingham Beers? So you have William James and you have Whittingham, Clifford Whittingham Beers, who are then going to propagate that we need medical doctors to study the immaterial part of you. Who did it before that? Clergy did it. And how did they do it? They used the Bible to do it. So in a good desire to help insane asylums, what 
Clifford did was bring in this unhelpful and somewhat confusing category of mental health slash mental illness. Let me read Dr. Truman's quote for you just one more time. Societies have categories for thinking about people and identity, and a real problem occurs when those categories are simply not adequate or appropriate. Friends, listeners, I propose to you that the category of mental health and mental illness is one of those categories that is not appropriate and it is not adequate. And I hope to show you in our next episode that the Bible differentiates between your mind and your brain. So this, this is great hope. This brings us great hope. The Bible clarifies the way that I should understand people. So here's the cliffhanger. You have to join me next episode to pick up with this thought. So let me pray. I'm going to pray that God would give you a level of openness and discernment. I want to help you think through the labels that you have been given. I want to help you think through the, lo- the labels, excuse me, that your children have been given. And I don't want to jettison all of them, but I do want you to promote a biblical understanding of people, which will bless you and bless your children in the end. So let me pray. Lord, there are many people that are going to hear this episode and think, what about my label? And I pray for them to start, help them to see what your word says and by your grace to begin to think your word has answers about their mental illness and their diagnosis. Lord, help all of us to trust what your word says and to look to your word, especially when we're clarifying things, things like the way that we should understand ourselves. So give us all humility to submit ourselves to the word in the end, and may you give me the grace to teach your word accurately as we work through this series, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This has been Transform with Dr. Greg Gifford, a production of Gospel Partners Media. Our website, of course, is transformed.org, and it is your central hub for finding in-depth information on all things transformed. If you've enjoyed Transform with Dr. Greg Gifford, consider subscribing and sharing with your friends and church family. Also, would you prayerfully consider joining this labor of love by becoming an ongoing monthly gospel partner? And until next time, go serve your king. 